Agustin de Iturbide would go into exile on March 26, 1823. The victorious general, who now styled himself as Emperor Agustin I, had become the ruler of a constitutional Mexico in May 1822. There had been a lot of confusion since he, Vicente Guerrero, and the other rebels had entered into Mexico City the previous year. A congress was called for to write a constitution for this brand new country. They originally wanted a constitutional monarchy. Remember that the most recent revolutionary wave had been led by conservatives who wanted to preserve as much as possible their status quo. So they actually shopped the option around to any royal in Europe who might want the gig. They went so far as to approach Ferdinand in Spain, hoping that he might seize the chance to rid himself of having to deal with those darn radical liberals who forced him to readopt the Constitution of 1812. But when no one answered their job postings, the people, with no coaching I'm sure, demonstrated in the streets of Mexico City to elevate Iturbide to the hot seat. The Congress would quickly come to regret this decision. Iturbide was a conservative at heart, so if he was going to be an emperor, he was going to be an autocratic and authoritarian one. After growing disagreements with the Congress, Emperor Augustine I disbanded them in October 1822, so yeah, that only took five months. However, this set off a wave of rebellions against the emperor that would finally see him ousted from power after only 10 months on the throne. In all of this, those citizens living in the frontier provinces, say for example the settlers in Arizona, played no active role. But the fall of Iturbide was a sign of things to come, as Mexico would know nothing but turmoil for decades. And that can't mean good things for Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 15, Mexico's Problem. I would like to start today first by thanking everyone for your patience after I basically skipped out on you last week. I hope you understand that even we history podcasters have our own lives and sometimes we have to take a break. But I'm back now and ready to dive into all the fun that is the Mexican era. As I mentioned before, this is sort of a lost time period when it comes to most general histories of the state. Many historians are content to say that Spain was ousted and hey, in 1846, here come the Americans. But these decades are fairly important as they will set up a lot of context for things that are to come, including what is the longest war in U.S. history. So this is what I would like to do. Today, I'll walk you through the broad strokes of the various historical forces that will keep slapping Mexico, and especially Arizona, over the next 20 years. We are going to be looking a lot at the big picture, with an eye toward going back next week to explore the nitty-gritty events in, say, Tucson or Tubac. Remember how last time I compared Mexican independence to a flash flood wiping out nearly everything? That analogy will become more and more apt because the disruption caused by all the political infighting and machinations down in Mexico proper is going to have a devastating impact on most aspects of day-to-day -day life in the Pimaria Alta. So I'm also going to apologize in advance for having two episodes in a row that only kind of sort of touch on Arizona. But the chaos unleashed by first the War of Independence and then the instability that followed is important context for how things will play out just a few short decades down the road. Through it all, Arizona, and those who live there, could only watch in disbelief as the flood of history carried away nearly everything with it. 
All right, so the first problem Mexico had was how to organize itself. With the autocratic Emperor Agustin now gone, it was time to write a new, new constitution. The Federated Constitution for the United States of Mexico would go into effect in October 1824. Under this governing document, what had once been provinces were being transformed into states, with their own legislatures and control over internal affairs. The losers here, though, were the insanely large, sparsely populated interior provinces of California, New Mexico, Texas, and Sonora. Before the Constitution even went into effect, Congress tried to group these into three large chunks connected to more populated states. For example, Sonora, and by extension Arizona, would be grouped together with Sinaloa and both California Alta and California Baja in what was called El Estado del Occidente, or the State of the West. I know, creative, right? No one was happy with this arrangement, and almost immediately, residents began agitating to be separate states. Texas, for example, will be trying to untie itself from the neighboring state of Coahuila for years. California and New Mexico will free themselves from the states down south, but will only be recognized as territories, not full states. The winner here is actually Sonora, which managed to successively separate itself from Sinaloa in 1830 to become its own thing. This reshuffling is not going to make it any easier on government officials trying to, you know, govern. For example, in the tumult of independence, Colonel Antonio Narbona, formerly the commander of the Tucson garrison, was serving as both governor and military commander for Sonora and Sinaloa in 1821. In 1823, following the fall of Iturbide, Narbona was replaced by Colonel Mariano de Urrea, who had been second-in-command at Tucson between 1793 and 1804. But after getting on scene, Urrea was told by his superiors to continue as governor, but turned military command back over to Narbona. Urrea refused, so Congress sent Simón Elias González to replace him. Just so you know, González is also a veteran of Arizona, having served at both Tucson and Tubac. He's also that officer I noted last time who served as part of the military tribunal that declared Father Hidalgo guilty. Elias Gonzalez will eventually be named governor in 1826, but first there will be back and forth as Urrea refuses to be removed, citing provisions in the Constitution of 1824. He will eventually be ousted in 1825 after Mexico City sent a military force to arrest him. It's not going to go well for him after that, and he will end his days as an exile in Ecuador. But it's not like Elias Gonzalez will have the chance to really relish in his new role. With more legislation to separate Sonora and Sinaloa causing yet another round of bitter political infighting, he will resign after less than a year to become governor of the far more stable state of Chihuahua. Making it much harder on everyone is the fact that the politicians in Mexico were all new to this independence thing and were having a difficult time navigating the economic, political, and social tides pulling on them. In 1828, the democratically elected leader was ousted to make way for the old hero of the revolution, Vicente Guerrero. Guerrero would then be deposed by his own vice president. From that point onward, Mexican politics becomes a running series of coups and counter-coups as military strongmen vied for power. Between May 1833 and August 1855, the presidency will change hands 36 times, 
with the average term of office being seven and a half months. The Constitution of 1824 was also tossed aside, with a new one being written in 1836 that, depending on your political viewpoint, was either called the Seven Laws or the Seven Plagues. Finally, a new, 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 new Constitution would be enacted in 1843 that would see Mexico up to its war with the aggressive neighbor to the north. And in the far-flung places, such as Arizona, this revolving door of leaders only meant that the connective tissue to Mexico was eroding faster and faster. But probably more devastating than this top-level political turmoil was the collapse of a much more venerable institution, the missions. Remember, missions in Arizona date back to the 1690s and Father Kino himself. Priests, first Jesuits and then Franciscans, have played an active role in exploration, colonization, and pacification efforts. They were part of the bedrock of the fledgling settlements in Arizona. Unfortunately, independence meant the ground shifted below their feet, and that foundation cracked. As you can imagine, a decade-long struggle for independence had disrupted any support coming north to the missions from the viceregal authority. Money was now being spent playing whack-a-mole with rebels, not on Franciscan stipends. And after independence, there was simply no money to spend. Independence also exacerbated another problem. The Franciscans' numbers were dwindling. Instead of recruiting out of the population all around them, the order had been focused on shipping in new priests from Spain. But after the revolution started, no one wanted to come anymore. In 1820, a delegation set sail to Spain hoping to find 30 new priests. They came back with only four. Now, we can add to this the pressure that began mounting at the end of the 18th century for the missions to secularize. We touched on this very briefly in episode 7, but basically secularization meant handing the missions over from religious orders, who lived on a government subsidy, to parish priests, who would be supported by the tithes and other fees from their parishioners. Technically, this is what the missions were supposed to be driving at from the get-go, though they were always very vague about when exactly this was supposed to happen. Remember also that Amerindians had the status of minors in Spanish law. So, in theory, the Franciscans were supposed to convert the natives, teach them how to be good Spaniards, and then turn over the mission lands they held in trust to the Amerindians. In practice, this rarely ever happened. The Franciscans consistently declared the Amerindians were not ready, claiming that their charges did not understand slash value private property, thrift, hard work, etc., which is just code for they didn't change their entire culture to conform to European ways of thinking. But secularization was becoming increasingly fashionable. For the more educated and liberal, the ideas of the Enlightenment held that everyone was equal, and that should apply to the Amerindians as well as any European. This view will be taken up by many of the Mexican governments throughout the 1820s. After all, equality for all had been part of the plan of Iguala. Furthermore, many liberals saw the dismantling of missions as a way to undercut the church's unchecked political power and wealth. The liberal Cortes in Spain declared in 1813 that all missions more than a decade old were to convert to secular parishes immediately. Land holdings would be divvied up to the natives to work or dispose of as they saw fit. Ferdinand's return to power would upend this order, but when Iturbide, sorry, Emperor Augustine I, came to power, he declared it to be in full force. 
Now, the government would swing wildly in its attempts to actually enforce this law. In 1834, the government of Valentin Gomez Farias would declare an immediate end to all missions inside the country, while a decade later, the government of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana would actually call for the Jesuits to come back and start missions again. The final blow for the missions, however, came in the late 1820s. Tensions between Spain and Mexico post-independence had reached a fever pitch. Spain hadn't done itself any favors either when it made a half-hearted attempt to reconquer Mexico in July 1829. This force, assuming that Mexicans were fed up with their leaders, didn't even bother to bring horses or artillery. Instead, they thought they would simply use the ones that grateful citizens would bring to the cause. But, of course, we all know what happens when you assume. Mexican xenophobia towards anything and anyone Spanish led to decrees in 1827 and again in 1829 for all Spaniards to leave Mexico. Like, right now. These orders were a particularly hard blow to the Spanish priests serving in future Arizona. There was simply no one to replace them. The missions were left without priests. Before independence, getting rid of priests in the Pimaria Alta sounded like a crazy idea. Most leaders recognized they helped control the native population and that their missions were turning out needed supplies of grain and livestock. There were no good alternatives to accomplish those same ends, and as we just discussed, even if there were, there were still no curas or secular priests to take over for them. So, for most of the 1820s, the Franciscans were still in good shape in the Pimaria Alta. Across the eight missions in today's Arizona and Upper Sonora, there were more than 1,100 Amerindians. Some Franciscans, with government backing, still dreamed of pressing onto the Gila River and even back to the Colorado. But after the ouster of the Spanish priest, that left a grand total of two Franciscans for the entire Pimaria Alta. One, Rafael Diaz, was a Spaniard who actually became a naturalized Mexican citizen. Having served at San Javier del Bac, he left the mission after the expulsion of the Spaniards. When the anti-Spanish sentiments died down, however, he returned to Tucson as the Presidio chaplain. He also started riding a circuit up and down the Santa Cruz Valley to administer sacraments to various communities. Diaz would move his headquarters south in the early 1830s and came up to Arizona communities less and less until his death in 1841. Worse yet, once the priests were gone, the mission holdings were transferred into the hands of overseers or mayordomos. Between the corruption of the mayordomos and the raiding by Apaches, which we will get to in a moment, by 1830 most of the mission fields, livestock, and other holdings had been abandoned, depleted, or stolen. The newly created state of Sonora actually tried to turn the missions back to the Franciscans, but the order no longer had the manpower to even attempt it. After 1843, Arizona would only see occasional visits by secular priests. And now we come to the next problem. Writing in 1835, Tucson-born Ignacio Zuniga would explain that independence was the effective death knell of the peace-by-purchase policy that had worked so well since 1786. When your policy consists of the government paying somebody off, having a bankrupt, constantly changing, unstable government is not a good idea. With no more payments coming in, those Apaches who had not settled next to their Hispanic neighbors, the so-called Manso Apaches, 
began to step up their raiding activities again. During the 1830s and 1840s, Apache raids would be as bad as they had been nearly a century beforehand. The capital of Sonora, which had been at Arispe since the 1780s, was moved south to Ures in 1838 just to get away from the raiders. Zuniga tells us that, quote, over 5,000 citizens or friendly Indians have been sacrificed to the ferocity of those barbarians, end quote. Though his number is undoubtedly too high, there is no doubting that the loss of life was extensive. All this was not helped by the fact that at the same time the lack of money, manpower, and any sort of strong hand on the tiller was also bringing down that other stable element of the frontier, the Presidios. Unsurprisingly, the Presidios were one aspect of Spanish governance that Mexico chose to keep. It even recognized the unique role of frontier Presidios by keeping the forces there separate from the regular army. As part of preserving the Presidio system, Spanish uniforms and standards continued to be the norm. Most continued to act under Rubí's regulations of 1772, which the government kept printing, even carrying over the signature at the end that read, I the King. But here we run into the money, manpower, and leadership challenges again. Quite simply, Mexico could not keep the Presidio staff to the level they required to be effective guards of the frontier. At Tubac, for example, there was supposed to be an 88-man garrison, but at times it could only muster less than a dozen. With high military officers constantly playing musical chairs over Mexico's presidency, that meant most of the troops, with the best arms and training, were kept near the capital to help facilitate the endless string of coups and counter-coups. Frontier defense, though given lip service by everyone as essential, fell by the wayside. The military budget ballooned during this time, but most of it went into the pockets of those same high military officers. Of course, Mexico was always teetering on the verge of bankruptcy anyway, so it's hard to say how much would have gotten to frontier soldiers even if this had not been an issue. With just a trickle of money making it to the frontier, the common soldier lacked for just about everything. Horses were a continual problem, being stolen away through native raids and never being replaced. In 1845, soldiers from Tubac pursued a group of raiding Apaches as far as the Gila River, but had to give up the chase because their ill-kept mounts couldn't keep going. Guns were another sore spot, with what few arms actually on the frontier being in terrible condition. Of course, the number of guns might be a moot point anyway because ammunition was in even shorter supply. Compounding the problem is that soldiers often traded away the horses and guns they had just to pay for food and clothing. Corruption, which had been on the decline in the last couple decades in the 18th century, was alive and well again under Mexican rule. Gouged by the company paymaster for what little supplies and rations they did receive, most men were deeply in debt. Retired soldiers had it worse off, with no hopes of any sort of pension under this system. I don't think I have to tell you what this did to morale. Since the regular military wasn't up for the job, occasionally bands of citizens would form militia-like posses to protect their homes. Continuing in the tradition among the frontiersmen, these companies usually contained a good deal of native volunteers as well. For example, in the fall of 1834, a group of 57 fighters left Tucson to tangle with the Apaches. Of these, 10 were Odom from San Javier del Bac and 20 were Apaches Mansos. These bands would have some success, occasionally returning with stolen horses or the ears of their enemies, but they definitely did not turn any sort of tide. At the root of all these issues, 
you'll recognize one underlying problem. As historian David G. Weber says, the nation was, quote, born bankrupt. The turmoil of the revolutionary years had dried up what little hard cash had existed on the frontier. Those who actually had cash were wary of investing it, and the failing economy also brought a drop in tax revenue. The frontier lifelines of ranching, agriculture, and mining were hit by the double whammy of economic setbacks and hostile natives. And the manufactured goods that used to come up from the more settled parts of Mexico disappeared. So those on the frontier began to look elsewhere for supplies. Which brings us to perhaps Mexico's biggest problem. The United States of America. Ever since those plucky tax-dodging colonists had won their independence, a cause that Spain had actually helped with, remember, everyone had kept a wary eye on this spunky new country that seemed to have an appetite for land. King Ferdinand and Spain had actually signed a treaty with the United States in 1819 that ceded all of Florida in order to be able to more effectively concentrate on the rebellion in New Spain. But Americans had actually started to trickle westward long before that. In 1806 and 1807, Lieutenant Zebulon Pike, the namesake for Pike's Peak in Colorado, would actually be captured by Mexican forces while exploring in their territory and taken to Santa Fe. He would later be dragged along to Chihuahua before being interrogated and escorted to Louisiana. Nor would he be the last group that got uh, lost and wound up inside of Mexico. But what was truly scary about the Americans is that they had the numbers. By 1820, the U.S. had a population of just under 10 million, which was more than double what it had been just 30 years beforehand. And that's compared to Mexico's 6 million. And that's 6 million across all of Mexico. Only 50,000 are estimated to have lived in the interior provinces between Texas and California. What's worse is that the United States was constantly growing due to a high number of immigrants coming to the country. Mexico, with its perennial political turmoil, moribund economy, religious intolerance, and oft-times xenophobic view toward Europeans, was much less attractive a destination for people coming to the New World. With that sort of pressure, it wouldn't be long before the two countries had a run-in. We, of course, know the ultimate political-slash-military clash between the two in 1846, but first, the Americans swooped in economically. On November 15, 1821, a small group of merchants led by William Becknell arrived in Santa Fe from Missouri. Becknell and other merchants were actually facing bankruptcy back home due to the Panic of 1819 and had moved into Indian territory to try and sell their goods. It's while out that way that they thought of heading toward Mexico and seeing if there were any potential buyers there. They were greeted with enthusiasm, with Becknell reporting that the residents of Santa Fe fished out coins they had stowed away for years in order to buy what the Americans were selling. Within two months, another two groups of merchants would pull into Santa Fe to the same warm reception. Becknell would return as soon as he could resupply, and from there, the Santa Fe Trail became the conduit for a booming business. These merchants were able to drastically undercut their Mexican rivals on prices by as much as two-thirds. They were also able to provide higher quality goods as well as things that simply could not be had from Mexican competitors. As you can imagine, this started breaking the economic ties south and started redirecting them east. Traders also started heading down from Santa Fe into the more populous and rich areas such as Chihuahua. 
Some years, more than $200,000 of Mexican silver flowed into the U.S. Now, as best I can figure, that's more than $5.5 million in 2020 dollars, but I could be wrong on that. Weber reports that in the 1830s, the Mexican peso, which at that point had nearly the same silver content as the U.S. dollar, became the standard for trade in Missouri and other frontier places where paper money was scorned. These merchants also brought back reports that the streams and rivers of New Mexico had something that the world wanted. Beavers. Not the beavers themselves, of course, but their skins. The eastern United States and most of Europe had been more or less cleared of beavers as a hunger for pelts, mostly to make hats out of, had been around since the 1600s. The Mexican merchants couldn't fully exploit this resource, but the Americans, with their established ties to European markets, were ready and willing to make their fortunes off of selling these so-called hairy banknotes. Trappers and mountain men descended on every river and stream to harvest plentiful supplies of the aquatic rodent. Weber says, and he's hardly the first to point this out, that it's something of a wonder that any beaver survived in the Southwest at all. In 1831, one estimate is that roughly one-third of the pelts coming out of the Rockies and the Southwest headed out along the Santa Fe Trail. We just don't have good numbers, but we think that's roughly $50,000 in beaver skins. The best I can figure is that's roughly $1.5 million in today's dollars, but once again, please don't quote me on that. We're going to dive much more into this next week. But of course, these trappers and mountain men will descend on Arizona and catch beaver off of all its rivers, particularly the Salt and the Gila. But they also weren't content with just going to Arizona and turning back around. They also would push on to California where sea otter fur and sealskin would also be powerful commercial incentives. Now, the Mexican government, whichever one was in power at the moment, wasn't thrilled by the American commercial presence. They made a series of stabs to curtail American merchants over the years. There were the standard means of import taxes and sales taxes, which one American merchant characterized as oppressive and could be up to 100% of the cost. In 1824, the government declared it illegal for foreigners to trap fur-bearing animals. Two years later, they outlawed foreigners from holding certain professions. Officials were also in the habit of posting lists of items that were illegal to sell in the country. The problem was... And are you tired of hearing this yet? The Mexican government changed with every strong wind these days, and the different regimes all had their own thoughts on economic policies. Rules were enforced, ignored, made, repealed, and rewritten constantly, with import duties, taxes, and prohibitive items lists being constantly revised. For the outside merchants, it looked like Mexican officials were capricious and arbitrary, with no real idea of what they were doing so foreigners didn't hesitate to go around what the national government was saying and did so mostly with the cooperation of local officials. Smuggling became the norm and the underprepared, understaffed, and most importantly, underpaid custom officials would never say no to a bribe. There are two other aspects of the American involvement we should touch on. First and foremost, your average Mexican Jose was not the only ones Americans were selling goods to. Even before Becknell and the rest started selling in Santa Fe, various American merchants had started to sell weapons and ammunition to Amerindian tribes they encountered. Spain had always kept a tight lockdown on what they sold to the natives. Remember that in his 1786 proposal, Viceroy Galvez actually ordered that only defective firearms be used to purchase peace. 
The Americans, however, were selling high-grade weaponry and powder. It has been argued that the Amerindians were equally deadly whether they wielded a gun or a bow and arrow, but it cannot be argued that the Amerindians themselves felt more effective when they had firearms. This massively upset the balance of power in the area, but worse than that, it actively encouraged more raiding and pillaging. Because if the Americans were willing to trade in guns, powder, bullets, and high-quality whiskey, then it behooved the Amerindians to trade with them. But if you are a Navajo, Ute, Apache, or Comanche who wants to trade, where do you get your goods? Yep, you guessed it. From the farm or ranch of the nearest average Jose. Laws went into place to forbid any Norte Americanos from trading with the natives, and harsh penalties were declared. But we've seen how effective officials have been at enforcing the law. Worse yet, some unscrupulous Mexican citizens also began to follow this example and willingly armed Amerindian tribes who would go on to raid other Mexican citizens. I should also note that it was American westward expansion, which was displacing Amerindian tribes left and right, that was causing pressure on some of the tribes in the southwest to also move and eventually rub up violently against Mexican communities. The last piece of what I'm now dubbing the American problem is that Mexico didn't do much to keep them from encroaching on their turf. An Argentine political theorist coined the phrase, to govern is to populate. By that metric, Mexico had a lot of governing left to do. A contemporary source from the period estimates that a full one-fourth of all Mexican land was unsettled, and nearly all of that empty land was on their northern frontier. This is more a problem for places such as California and Texas, because no one who didn't already live in Tucson or Tubac was really interested in the geographically isolated, sparsely settled, and horribly hot swatch of land that is Arizona south of the Gila River. Authoritarian Spain had done its level best to keep foreigners out of its territories, but under Mexico, a different tact was struck. In 1824, the country passed the Colonization Law, which guaranteed land, security, and, ready for this? Exemption from taxes for four years for foreigners settling in Mexico. There were some strings attached, of course. Foreigners couldn't acquire land within 20 leagues of another nation or 10 miles of the coast. They couldn't possess more than 11 leagues of land, or roughly 71 square miles. And preference would be given to Mexican citizens. An 1828 addendum would later add that citizenship would be a requirement for anyone living in Mexico after two consecutive years. It might seem strange to allow foreigners into a country that is already afraid of being gobbled up by another country. But you have to remember that by 1823, there were already 3,000 Norte Americanos squatting in Texas. The hope was that by elevating them to legal landowners, they would have a stake in the success of the nation and not you know, revolt, separate from Mexico, and join the United States. But really, what were the chances of that, am I right? After Texas eventually does do just that, Mexico would do its level best to keep the same thing from happening in California, but, well, they haven't really been that successful at anything, have they? Weeper does make the point that during all of this, there never seemed to be any sort of organized push to expand Mexican territory north of Tucson. Of course, once again, it wasn't like anyone was really agitating to turn the Sonoran Desert over to the U.S. So, in the two and a half decades following independence, the northern frontier was unraveling fast. 
Its missions were being abandoned. Its presidios were falling into disrepair. Attacks from Apaches and other hostile tribes were increasing. The Americans were starting to press in, and no one knew at any given time exactly who was running the show down in Mexico City. This is not exactly Mexico's fault, as any time you throw off a government you lived under for 300 plus years, there are going to be some growing pains. The period just after revolutions are actually incredibly hard things, and if you are dealt a bad hand of historical cards, it can turn against you real quick. But I want to leave things here for this week. We've completed our broad sweep of the conditions of Mexico, so now it's time to go back and take a boots-on-the-ground look at how things are in the Pimaria Alta. So join me next week as citizens in Tucson are flummoxed, as conditions worsen, and reports of scraggly Norte Americanos begin to arrive from the north. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.